0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: This is KNX in depth. I'm Mike Simpson.
0: I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show: Say you're a college student. Say you spent a semester or more at home learning online because of the pandemic. And say you now want some of your money back. Well, that's the situation with some UCLA students, and we will go in depth. It's North versus South northern california versus southern california that is why is the pandemic seemingly hit southern california harder we'll check it out and covid shots for babes and arms or in this case arms of babes
1: (laughs) former president trump reportedly tried really really hard to get federal agencies including homeland security to seize voting machines after he lost the election to joe biden so we'll talk about that cnn senior legal analyst laura coates joins us a little bit later new book out. We'll ask her about the conflicts she faced as a former federal prosecutor, also a black woman, and Wordle, you know it, or maybe you don't. Maybe you just yeah. see people post about it on yeah. Twitter. You haven't yeah. played yet.
0: No, I haven't. but And I know you have. So, yeah. But I'm not a dis- like a
1: super fan.
0: Yeah, but I'm at a disadvantage. because you've I've seen it being played. Yes. I just haven't it.
1: I remember the first two weeks I tried to avoid yeah. it at all costs, going, what are these boxes? You know what? I don't care to know. <laughs> I don't need another thing. Uh, but we'll talk about it because the big sale happened in the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, but they say it'll still be free. Uh, so that's it uh, towards the end of the show.
0: Okay. So let's start, though, with uh, UCLA and some students who they say they want some of their money back. Why? With us is Quinn O'Connor, fourth-year theater student and co-founder of the Disabled Student Union at UCLA, which co-organized a sit-in protest. Uh, Quinn, thanks for being with us. So uh, what's the case for getting some of your money back?
2: Yes. um, So we currently have two really um, big campaigns going on. One is um, getting certain student fees back, especially throughout the whole pandemic. There were a lot of facility fees like um, the Wooden Gym Center, et cetera, et cetera, where students were still being charged throughout the entire pandemic for those fees, even though we weren't using those facilities. And the those campaigns are calling for refunding of those student fees. And honestly, in my opinion, I think, you know, Chancellor Jean Block can take a little pay cut during the pandemic to help um, kind of remedy that. Because in the end, I know that those facilities fees do um, actually benefit a lot of staff members at UCLA that are kind of more um, mid-range salaries. So we do recognize that. But on the other hand, Um, The Disabled Student Union as well as a lot of um, students of color and those organizations have been collaborating on a mass sit-in protest currently advocating for increased remote access to our classes as well as a lot of um, outstanding kind of exploitation of students of color at the university. And that is currently what we are sitting in and protesting for. Do
1: you just want the option to go back remote or and for how long? I mean, all signs point to the pandemic hopefully getting better as we go through the next few weeks and everything. But it's still a danger to, to people. And is that why you're pushing for this? And what would that look like? You know, you don't have to come in if you don't want to. And the teacher can set up a Zoom and have a lecture at the same time.
2: Yeah, so basically, like, uh, yeah, at its core, um, you know, opening up a Zoom room to basically make sure that the students who, like, we're paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for this education at UCLA, so we believe that we have the right to choose how we can best learn, and this isn't just a disabled student issue. It's also, you know, students with dependents who still, you know, aren't vaccinated fully yet with young children who don't feel safe going in person. um, Yeah, at its core, opening up a Zoom room for a lecture so that people can come in if they deem that the safest way for them to learn that day. That's basically what we're advocating for. But also, throughout the pandemic, right. UCLA has outfitted many of their lecture halls with these really fancy cameras, and which really make it very easy to live stream mm-hmm. and record lectures. But they're just not um, making professors do that right so, now. So, so, so,
0: Quinn, just I, so I, I get what you're saying here. Uh, it, it sounds like what you're advocating is basically two different pay systems, right? Uh, for those who are going to class... They would presumably pay the full tuition amount, right, and those who opt to continue to study at home online would get a reduced payload yes
2: uh yeah at its, at its core yes but um so doesn't with, that doesn't well, that wait a minute, wait, wait, wait but doesn't campaign? that yeah
0: but doesn't that create kind of like a sort of a, well, a two class system that that one some students will pay more and some will pay less depending on where they choose to learn whether at home or in the classroom.
2: Yeah, so with the Refund Bruins campaign, which is that, I'm not necessarily a specific spokesperson for that campaign, um, but in the end, I think when it comes to the, that campaign, it's really just for this past year and a half. Like, I'm sure that right now, even if there are remote options available, um, those students, I think, would feel relatively okay doing that because campus is open. So if they, you know, if they don't deem it safe to go into a 300-person lecture hall, they're still using the facilities now, now that the campus is actually open to the public. So when it comes to the Refund Bruins campaign, it's not really a matter of whether or not, you know, you choose to learn in person or remotely. It's a matter of like using those, using the facilities that weren't available to us for the past year and a half. And they are now available.
1: Quinn O'Connor there, fourth year theater student, co-founder of stable Student Union at CUCLA.
0: Right now, L.A. has the edge. Over San Francisco, when it comes to post-season sports, but when it comes to this latest Omicron surge, an L.A. Times analysis finds the Bay Area has done much better than Southern California. The death rate is nearly three times lower up north. Dr. Robert Kim Frawley is a professor of epidemiology and community health sciences at UCLA. Doctor, thanks for being
3: with us. So why is that the case? Is it a fluke? (laughs) Hi, Mike and Charles. Good to be back with you today. Well, no, it's not a fluke. It's really probably driven primarily by the issue of vaccination. As you point out, we have about 11 deaths per 100,000 in Southern California, where it's only, uh, if you will, four per 100,000 in the Bay Area, about a third difference. But if you look at it in terms of vaccination, the Bay Area is 82 to 84% 84% vaccinated and 50% boosted where we're sitting here at around 70% vaccinated and only a third boosted. So I think that's probably one of the big drivers of this.
1: And it is both, right? It's the first set and then the discrepancy among the boosters and boosters, especially important when it comes to Omicron.
3: Yes, you're exactly right. You know, uh, basically with the, uh, Just the two doses, for example, of Pfizer, you had about 81% protection for hospitalization. But that drops to about 57% after six months. But if you get boosted, it goes back up to 90% protection. So that's, again, a a very good point that you're bringing up. Boostering is now really an essential part of vaccination.
0: Okay, so let's say that uh, because there's a higher vaccination rate, which there is, as you just pointed out, in the Bay Area, and that accounts for why... The pandemic has not been as harsh up there as it has been down here. That still begs the question, why is that the case? Why have they been far more successful at getting the population vaccinated than we are here?
3: I think there are different demographics involved. I think that, for one thing, uh, you know, they also have other things that go on. For example, the more white-collar workers in the Bay Area that can uh, have the luxury, if you will, of being uh, able to work remotely where that's not so common here in uh, Southern California. Many uh, agricultural workers, uh, people have to be on the front line, meat packing plants, things like this, uh, put them at higher risk. So I think that's one thing to realize is the demographic is a bit different in the two.
1: So when people points to the Bay Area and they say, you know, masks are coming off in some of these settings, uh, we can't, make that comparison or jump ahead to that point here in L.A. just yet. It's going to take us a a longer amount of time to to get to that kind of a
3: place. Exactly right. And I think that uh, that's the proper approach that they're taking in the Bay Area. And I'm sure we'll do the same here in Southern California, that as rates drop to where they become lower in transmission in the community, then masks can come off. So the more we do our part now of getting vaccinated, getting boosted, Wearing masks while we have high transmission will get us faster to the point where we can then be at low transmission and be able to go back to more of a normal way of life.
0: So why am I becoming envious of Northern California?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot to be said for the Golden Gate Bridge.
1: Yes, it's very nice. But their football team lost. Yeah, well, true. uh, That is uh, Robert Kim Farley, professor, epidemiology, community health sciences at UCLA.
0: A little bit later, Wordle. Do I need to say more? No. People are getting addicted also, and we try to find out why. CNN senior legal analyst Laura Coates will be with us to talk about her new book and the time she spent as a federal prosecutor protecting voting rights and the conflict That she also faced as a black woman in the criminal justice system.
1: Right now, though, babies and toddlers could soon get a COVID vaccine shot. Pfizer set to ask the FDA for emergency approval of a two dose course for kids six months to five. The Biden administration aims to clear the way for the shots uh, as soon as later this month. Dr. Lisa Hong is a pediatrician at Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So exciting news for parents of uh, little ones, we assume. But take us through the point to how we get. Got here because wasn't there some discussion that the two doses, uh, when studied, wasn't enough, and they were looking at three.
4: That's correct, Mike. Um, the Pfizer had gone through a long, vigorous study, and it sounds like today they're already to submit some of that data. And you're absolutely right. The dose that they're shooting for is actually three micrograms, which is less than even the dose for kids five and up, and only a third of what we adults would get. So it's a much smaller dose, and what they found. Uh, Last, or I guess two months ago, was that for a certain age group, for the two years to four years, it didn't seem to have the same uh, response that we saw with the older kids. But the two, the six months to two years, it did have a significant response. Despite this, though, they will be submitting it for authorization with the anticipation that we may need a third dose just to boost those first two doses.
0: Okay, so one would think that because of the pandemic, that parents would be once a a vaccine is available for for babes, that they would be, you know, lining up to get the shots. But I'm sure you've seen the same polls that I've seen, and that doesn't seem to be in the cards. And maybe that'll change. But right now, an awful lot of parents are very skeptical about having their children, young children vaccinated. So you're a pediatrician. What's your and I hate to be this crude, but what's your sales pitch to them?
4: We see a mixed bag, like you said, we do have some some parents who are a little more hesitant and some who are very excited. It is a very promising vaccine. We've seen it, we've seen the effects of it in the older kids, in the teens and in the adults. What's important to remember is that despite the vigorous response that we're expecting and did not get as much of in the two years to four years, it is a very safe vaccine. That under, uh, you know, bottom line, it is safe. So we are seeing that, uh, especially in the older kids, it is helpful. So I would recommend it because not only will it prevent kids from getting sick, it also prevents uh, our kids from spreading it to the rest of the community as well. And it's a big um, ripple effect because if our kids, especially kids that are younger in preschool, when they get sick, then they have to be home. They can get their teacher sick. Daycares can close down. Parents are missing work. And also, uh, whether or not they have the vaccine will determine how their quarantine or isolation uh, will be affected as well. So uh, while there is still some uh, hesitancy, because we haven't seen all the data, I think that there's also a lot of excitement.
1: And they shouldn't let the two versus three until they figure that out discourage them, right? Because even if it's not, you know, the outcome that everyone was super hoping for which would be a really high level the two probably at least gives you something right some baseline and then if you're going to need the third well then that's great we'll get you the third later on once we've studied more of the what happens with the third
4: right i think the idea is to at least get two on first and in the meantime continue to study with the third one what's the side effect
0: profile for for young kids
4: the side effect profile seems to be really good the main side effect as with any vaccine is some tenderness to the area some fever some soreness. But uh, what we've seen in the 5 to uh, 11, the side effects seem to be very minimal. And with even lower dose, I expect the the side effect profile to be even better.
1: Dr. Lisa Hong, pediatrician, Providence Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo.
0: This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: New York Times out with this uh, bombshell of a story. Detailing information from sources about how former President Trump directed Rudy Giuliani to go and ask if Homeland Security could legally seize voting machines in key swing states. And apparently this was maybe the fourth draft of plans like this. There was... Uh, machinations about maybe the National Guard could do it or maybe the military itself or maybe the Justice Department. All three of those were a no. So then he sent Rudy to Homeland Security to say
0: maybe if they could do it. Yes. Now, this report comes after a weekend when Mr. Trump declared at a rally that... He just may pardon people charged in connection with the January 6th insurrection, if, of course, he gets reelected president. Is this latest report evidence of criminal wrongdoing? David Katz is a criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor. David, thanks for being with us. So is it?
5: I think it clearly is um, criminal. And I think that's what um, the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland are going to have to look at after this House investigation, which is going on now with uh, Adam Schiff from here in Southern California, uh, Cheney, uh, and Chairman Thompson. But I think it is criminal because this was acting against so much advice. It's one thing to say I was acting based on legal advice and I'm the president, or any executive can say I'm acting on legal advice. But Trump here, ex-President Trump, was really acting against legal advice. The remarkable thing here is that in November, after it was clear that the electoral vote had gone against him and that he was going to have to leave office, Trump first tried to persuade Barr to go along with this, and he told his attorney general, Barr, and Barr, of course, is not the hero of the Mueller report. Barr uh, was his enabler in the view of many people, but even Barr told Trump, I don't know where you're hearing that this is legal. This is not legal. You cannot seize voting machines. The Department of Justice has no power to go in and seize voting machines. Soon after that, Barr quit. And then Trump went around and tried to have the Department of Defense do it. He tried to have the Department of Homeland Security do it. When he tried with the Department of Homeland Security in the military, even Giuliani, who was also deemed you know, his, his conciliary, uh, and someone who acted in the courts in a way that was really sanctionable and took extreme positions in the courts that the courts didn't back Giuliani up on, even Giuliani told him, no, Mr. President, you cannot do this. You do not have the authority. He had Giuliani call over to a fellow named Cipollone, who was the deputy chief over there at the Department of Homeland Security, and he told Giuliani, "We have no authority to do that." And Giuliani went back to Trump and said, "They have no authority to do that. You can't do it." And nevertheless, executive orders were drafted. So, so David, should,
0: right, but out, but David drafted. Should, should we be should we be comforted that all these places turned down Mr. Trump, or horrified that? the then-sitting president of the United States was trying to do all this.
1: That These state is drafts and not actual orders.
5: Well, I think Madison and Hamilton would have been very gratified that our system of checks and balances and separation of powers held, because they were obviously very worried in the Federalist Papers, in the Constitution, and, and ever since, that we would have an autocrat who would not give up power. The autocrat, he or she would be voted out, and he or she would not leave. And they would come up with all of these machinations. I mean, Trump's latest thing is that Vice President Pence should have not counted the votes, that Trump wasn't in the wrong, that Pence was in the wrong for counting the electoral votes of the states, for not coming up with some ruse to send it back to the states when the states had already voted and sent their electors. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Our system did hold. Uh, A lot of people are worried that it held by the skin of its teeth, right? Uh, But it did hold. And people like in this situation, even Barr and Giuliani, Cipollone did not go along. State legislators and officials did not go along, even though many of them were Republicans, like down there in Georgia. So, yes, the system held, but it was really scary. And you look back on it, and if a president ever refuses to count the votes because his opponent won, we're really done with democracy, aren't we? Then we we have a king. You can't vote him out. And uh, no matter how you vote, he doesn't count the votes that are against him. He only counts the votes that are for him. And anybody who votes against him has to be recounted until eventually the sitting president just takes office again despite the vote. So, yes, we survived but barely.
1: David Katz, criminal defense attorney, former federal prosecutor.
0: By the way, uh, we were talking a little before about Pfizer wanting to have emergency authorization for its COVID vaccine for little children. They now have, in fact, asked for that emergency authorization for COVID shots for kids as young as six months of age. Don't run out, though, and try to get a shot for your kid. Still has to go to the FDA for approval and the CDC.
1: Right now, Wordle. This game has been bought by the New York Times. It's all over the internet. A whole bunch of people are playing, and uh, reportedly it's sold for something in the low seven figures, so kudos to the guy that invented this a few months ago. Uh, So what is it about Wordle that's made the game so popular? We're joined by Katie Pierce, Associate Professor of Communication, University of Washington, and then Vicki Moore, Morning Drive anchor right here. Who plays Wordle, and uh, she's has still been not, known? She, yes, she's still on. No nap yet. <laughs> It'll be right after this. Uh, Vicky, hold on for just a second. Katie, let's start okay. with you. For people who you know have only seen maybe the squares posted or haven't been interested at all, describe it really quick, and then give us a, a quick synopsis on why you think it is such a phenomenon.
6: Sure. Well, Wordle is a puzzle game that is very easy to play because it just requires you going to a website. You don't have to create an account. You don't have to download an app. You don't really have to set up anything at all. Um, Also, we know with games that they're popular if they're pretty easy to figure out. This is true for board games, video games. But if they take some time to master, that's sort of the sweet spot for games. So Wordle as a game uh, requires you to guess a five-letter word, and you only have uh, a few chances to guess it. The game tells you if a letter that you chose was correct and if it was in the right spot. So Uh, It changes color. If there was an A in the word, but it wasn't in the right spot, you know you can try it a few different ways. Uh, It came out um, a couple months ago, but it got popular over the last few weeks because after you play, whether you're successful or not, or even if you're successful in your first few guesses... There's an ability to share it on social media, on Twitter. So, on
0: so you're showing, you're showing off to your friends, and that's right? how that's I think it. so many of that's us figured it. out that
1: it was. Yeah. What, like I start, we talked earlier, and I said yeah. I started seeing the squares everywhere, and I was like, "What is this thing right. that I'm seeing all over?" So, so that's all over you, the you, internet you, you get
0: to say to your friends, "I'm smarter than you because <laughs> I, I guessed it a lot sooner." Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay, Vicky, uh, Vicky Moore, yes. Uh, yes. You. I understand, correct me if I'm wrong i understand I understand you like playing wordle, yes
7: I do, okay. I do now, do you want to know why?
4: Yes, yes <laughs>
7: <Okay>. <laughs> um uh, that's why you called me, um no, you know, one of the reasons I really like wordle is because there's been so much negativity, particularly on social media for so long. And all of our feeds, you know, there's this animosity and division between Republicans and Democrats and who stands where on the COVID vaccine. And this is something that no matter your politics, no matter where you stand on whatever the issues are, you can come together in these little colorful boxes and talk (laughs) about vowels and consonants. And it's really, it's not I, I, I keep trying to bring people into it. You know, I've tried to get Dick Helton into it, I've tried to bring <laughs> Brian Douglas into it, you know, because it's fun. It's just, it's one word, one day. Well. And- it's just, it's just nice.
0: Well, Miss Moore, have I, you played I, today? Yeah. Yeah, you haven't played, right? <laughs> so,
7: no, and I'm so, I'm so intimidated by today because I was looking this morning, and there, and there were people who okay. were like, I got it in two, two letters, or you know, or two, two times. He
0: right? well, on, I, yeah. I feel, I feel like oh, a game the pressure. I, yeah, I feel like a game show host. But let's play Wordle. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I don't have the music
1: for this. Right. We don't have I have theme all these music, buttons, yeah. no and no I have music. Music. Th- nothing to play. There you go. Very nice. So, Vicky, let's try.
7: Yeah. The thing about, okay. Do you have it up? Yeah.
1: I have it up. So I'll type it in for you. Yeah. What, what do you want to guess?
7: Oh, no no no, no. You, we you should can... all do this on our own but,
1: okay, but so I, the I the word was spoiled for me so i know what yeah it is. see
7: mike mike oh, knows oh, no.
1: by our program yeah, so yeah mike 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 knows like ken charles <laughs> yeah. who screamed okay. it down the hall
7: okay now, okay so charles <laughs> has to do it because i have tremendous anxiety about this because i have a record and it's not a good one it's just that <laughs> <laughs> it's just that i've never missed right i've always got it in at least five or six tries right and my goal is like yeah. two or three now, okay. today, like I said, people are saying they got it in two tries or three tries. So the thing about Wordle is you you have a starter word. Everybody kind of has their starter words, right? Right. And. And to be honest with you, I already because I knew you guys were going to do this. I already plugged in my starter word and my second word, and now I'm hung on the third. <laughs> oh, so I can't, I can't lose. I can't do this with you. So Charles, can you do it?
0: No, and no. I'll... I want you to do it. No, <laughs> What's I'm your not, starter I'm word? Te- <laughs> yeah, I'm terrible at this. No, no, no. I, <laughs> you, you, guys not, <laughs> you guys are not.
7: You guys are not going to force me to lose. Okay, so the word that I use. and yeah. Like I said, everybody has a different word, and I found this because I've done research.
1: Okay. Um, is, oh, wow. Is, <laughs> why am I not surprised? <laughs> it's just research on words. It's word like 5 a.m. She's wow. What are good <laughs> wordle starter words?
7: Okay, adieu.
0: Adieu. Oh,
6: see, this is smart because of the yes, vowel. Katie, please and tell us. What's interesting <laughs> is there are these data scientists who are trying to figure out the best word to start with, and they'll say, "Okay, if you start with this word, how many possible words are left?" So I personally start with arise mm. because it has R and S, ah. and then obviously A I E. But I saw the other day that ado gets you all those vowels. Yeah. And then you can eliminate. But um
1: I, I did a quick you test. Know? You know, Google Google will fill in things for you. Yeah. And literally if you type the word ado into Google, it says ado wordle. So other people have been on <laughs> yeah. this track. Oh, yeah yeah, yeah.
7: <laughs> And then I have I have a follow up word. I have a follow up word. Um so because you have to get all the vowels and then you start yeah. getting the consonants. But I'll tell you another good starter word that I researched, radio. Okay. Radio radio. Mm. Radio. Mm-hmm.
0: So when, when, yeah. when you guess, Vicki, do you like go on social media and, and boast about it?
7: Well, it's, see, that's the thing. And I know you put it out there before as well. You tell people they're, you're better than them or you boast. And it's and it, for me, it really is just sharing. I like what other people get. And it's really just. You know, oh, I haven't seen that person's. Oh, they got two or they got three, and then it's like, can I do that? I really find it—it's—it's it's camaraderie, it's—it's it's unity. I like it. So, Katie, where does it,
0: where, where does this go? I mean, you know, things have fads and they kind of have a natural lifespan. Now, the New York Times bought it, so I suppose the lifespan is going to be a lot longer. But where does it <laughs> 100 go? Hundred years. Yeah, where does it go now?
6: Yeah, it's a good question because. Um, A lot of times with these sort of internet games, they come and go, people move on to something else. Um, I think that with the New York Times buying it, you know, as you said, good on this guy who just sort of created this for his girlfriend, that he made some money off of it. Great for him. And The New York Times does have a lot of these uh, puzzle games already, and obviously the crossword for many years. And so it's probably a good home for it. But what a lot of people online are a little worried about is, is right now it's free. Uh, The New York Times games, I think is about five bucks a month to belong to, and that is a barrier uh, to people using it. So I, I suspect people will probably keep playing this because one of the things we didn't mention is that. You uh, can only play once a day. That's very different than a lot of other games and other, uh, you know, distractions on social media. But um, I suspect that the sharing of your results is going to go away there's already a bit of a backlash
7: <laughs> right there's already yeah. people why are there saying, so many you know, squares
0: yeah well now i'm it. i'm inventing a, a new game it, it's about a phrase gotta go <laughs>
1: <laughs> but i have one more for vicky are uh, okay. you gonna you are gonna finish today right yeah. you have oh, to keep yeah. the streak alive
7: I do, yeah, and I'll share it later on my on my Twitter page. we'll <laughs> be looking more for more news. There it is. Yeah, there's okay. the plug. I'll get it. <laughs> good, good,
0: that was a good tease. Good tease.
1: All right, there's Vicky. She's going to finish the word, and she'll get it today. And then Katie Pierce, associate professor at uh, University of Washington. You're
0: listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman.
1: If you watch CNN, you probably have seen Laura Coates, senior legal analyst, sharing her insight on the big trials, cases, and
0: legal dilemmas of the day. She was with the uh, Justice Department during the Obama administration was in, and was in charge of enforcing voting rights. Laura Coates shares her experience protecting those rights as well as her experience as a prosecutor and the injustices she saw in the criminal justice system in her new book, Just Pursuit, the Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Laura, thanks for being with us.
8: Thank you. I'm so glad I'm with you guys today. How are you
0: doing? We're we're fine. We just got off a segment talking about Wordle, but we'll get in, we'll get into that later. <laughs> Please don't,
8: because I've been trying to figure out. I watch SNL, and I'm trying to laugh along when they do the little segment. I go,
0: "What is Wordle?"
8: <laughs> yeah. I know I know I'm laughing, but what am I laughing at? I avoided it for as long <laughs> yeah, as I possible, know. I know. right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, we just okay. So let, let me. There's a part of your book, um, and and I want to make sure I got this right. So if I if I get it wrong quickly jump in. But you were a prosecutor, right? And uh, you won a case. And it ended with, I think it was your, maybe your your superior at the time, there was like a high five. And that really was almost an epiphany for you. Do I got that kind of right?
8: You, you did. I mean, the idea, I had had sort of these battles of allegiance that I was always grappling with in a sense of sometimes, as you can imagine, your moral compass can point one direction and the orders you're given can point another. And I think that people often underestimate the nuance of the legal system and the complications where you really have to see that sometimes the pursuit of justice creates injustices. And there was one instance, at least of the many trials I did, where my supervisor said we got another one. And after a long sort of career of thinking about these quandaries, that statement of we got another one, not we got a conviction, not justice was served, but this idea of the us's versus them's was really um, at a time, one that I could no longer reconcile. And I just saw moments that turned into hours, turned into um, months and years, thinking about the ways in which our justice system really is a legal system aspiring to be a justice system.
1: Was it how people viewed you or was it how you felt in each of these jobs? Because they were very different, right? I mean, voting rights, you you feel like an advocate because that's what you're out there doing, right? Protecting people's rights to vote. Then you become a prosecutor. You're going after people. Was this an internal conflict or were people looking at you and going, whose side are you on or both?
8: Yeah. It was both. And, you know, it's funny because I started out in private practice and um, doing First Amendment work and media and intellectual property litigation. And so, you know, there, there was no real choice about whose side you're on. You're on the side of your client. And then when I went to the Justice Department and I started in the voting rights section of the Civil Rights Division, again, it was a foregone conclusion, frankly, that I was going to be championing for those who were often marginalized and whose law rights have been infringed overwhelmingly by the system. But then even under that same umbrella of the Department of Justice, I found myself um, being perceived as not a champion, um, but wonder, wondering from people's perception that I was almost betraying the very people that I had once been assumed to advocate for. Even though, of course, my victims were black and brown, because I was overwhelmingly prosecuting the disproportionate number of black and brown people as defendants, I was perceived very differently. It didn't necessarily change the way I saw myself in terms of what I thought my directives would be and what I would do. But over time, I started to question whether I was truly a champion or complicit. And, you know, it's one thing to have a seat at the table, but if you're not going to ensure that fairness or that justice is actually served and you seek camaraderie, over civil rights, well, then you find yourself in difficult circumstances. And I was grappling with that and wrote about it in great detail.
0: You know, it's interesting, Laura, that you mentioned that because I'm sort of thinking back. I used to cover a lot of court cases, and I do remember being in courtrooms where the defendant in a criminal case uh, was African-American and the prosecutor was, and seeing uh, black people in the the courtroom almost... uh, you know, staring at the and I thought maybe it was my imagination, but I don't think it was that they didn't no, look at the No, It was not. No, it wasn't. <laughs> it, it, right. I mean, it was almost like it was a betrayal. And that's what you were feeling. Right. That that's how well, they yes. felt. And,
8: you know, I, I even wrote a chapter about this. And one of them is called The Right Seat at the Table. And it was a, you know, a sort of a confrontation between myself and a black defense counsel who both of us felt quite earnestly, that we were on the right side of the table and the right seat at the table. Me, as a prosecutor, being able to exercise discretion and my lived experience informing that as much as my own uh, interpretation and understanding clearly of the law, and also um, knowing that, look, you have to have a healthy level of skepticism as you are trying to objectively pursue justice in the sense of every officer is not getting the job done perfectly. Witnesses, you have to question the idea of whether someone's civil rights have been violated, whether you're providing exculpatory evidence to try to aid in the person's defense. These are things that, you know, as a prosecutor, you are in a proactive position to make decisions. As defense counsel, you are far more reactive and you are really stepping into the, the ball game when most of the consequential decisions have been made. And so I really um, focused and talked about during that one chapter in particular about trying to reconcile those two notions. And um, what was the point of having a seat at the table if you didn't have the ability to wield power um, from that position, but it's a very, it can be very tense. It can be very, um, you know, a, a big struggle to be able to reconcile those two things but also in the greater justice system, gentlemen, when you think about the ways in which, you know, how often do you have people say, well, that ought to be illegal? And there's a gap between what actually is illegal and the conduct that actually had occurred, or the ideas of, you know what, that doesn't seem fair. And is there some way to, to bridge that gap? Is there some way to ensure that you actually are securing justice? And when you insert race and bias that come that is, you know, that infects our justice system, frankly, and really has touched every part of our society since the beginning of this country. You know, you can't ignore its influence in our justice system as well.
0: Laura, let's turn to voting rights. Uh, Because as you point out in your book, uh, that was a big part of your professional life was, was, was fighting for voting rights. And there's probably now, and and I, I, I don't think I can be really fairly contradicted on this. No bigger threat to democracy in this country now than what is happening with various states trying to undo voting rights. What's your take on all that?
8: What do you mean? Was there an issue in the United States about voting? I'm, I, did I did I miss a headline? What 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 could what could you possibly be referring to? I don't because know. anything. Right. <laughs> Is this part of Wordle again? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's another wordle, wordle. wordle. It's a Wordle quiz. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, one of the things I I sort of you know it, I would laugh if it were. Not so sad, even though I am laughing, because the idea that the concept of voting rights has become such a partisan issue is beyond me. I mean, no one was ever guaranteed to vote for the winner, but you ought to have a fair opportunity to participate in the process and have a fair shot at trying to elect the person you want to represent you. And so we've got really in in so many instances these ideas of these pretextual reasons that people are codifying aspects of the big lie to suggest that this is a solution to, well, non-existent problems. Now, widespread voter fraud did not occur. And don't take Laura Coates' word for it. You can ask the former Attorney General, Bill Barr, who also said the same thing, or anyone who went into a courtroom and, um, and tried to convince a judge who was looking for an opportunity to give some sort of adjunctive relief and had no proof whatsoever. And I point this out because there's a conception that the idea of trying to claw back voting rights really began with the big lie of 2020. But in reality, ever since the Supreme Court gutted the Section 5 preclearance requirement, which required jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination to get the preauthorization of the Department of Justice before they made any voting related change, There was an attempt even then to try to start to roll back much of the gains of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And it's continued to this day under different guises, under different pretexts. And, you know, I think it's very difficult for any of us to, with a straight face, say that we can have a strong democracy, but be weak on voting rights. The two just cannot intersect. And I think that it's incumbent upon everyone to understand the gamesmanship that are at stake here but also with the consequences and the risk when people not only believe the big lie or that our elections are somehow fraudulent and it's not a fair system, but what that means for um the way the rest of the world views us, but also how our own electorate views the integrity of our elections and, um, and wondering if it's an exercise in futility to even participate. And that's sort of the feeling of the justice system for many people as well, this idea of The deck being so stacked against you that there's no fair opportunity for a kind of due process. And so these are very, you know, intersectional and there are parallels that are running rampant. And I hope we begin to see that more and more.
1: What do we do when we're in this place, though, where so many people do and you ask them and the polling shows it, they do believe, you know, the big lie?
8: You know, I and I wonder at times if sometimes when people are making that statement that they're that the point is to be polemic, that the point is to frustrate as opposed to actually say what one thinks. Because, of course, there is the idea of being able to suggest that, hey, as long as I can um, with a straight face tell you a big lie is real, then I am justified in everything else I'm doing. When in reality, I, I wonder the, um, the real sincerity of people's beliefs. But for those that really sincerely do believe that, I think our congressional leaders And those who are leaders in different parties across the spectrum at the state, local, and the federal level have got to continue to be vocal about why this is not the case, why the big lie is in fact a lie. And I think the January 6th committee, frankly, has um, its work cut out for them, but I think the work also carved out for them to be able to, through public hearings, help people understand the anatomy of the big lie, because it didn't come from nowhere. We can't be dismissive of it. We can't essentially relegate people who do believe it as, um, you know, in disregard that they are a a growing population or not wanting to be in the shadows or quite vocal. And I'm hoping that whatever we find is illuminated from the hearings and the committee, that we will better understand how to help inform people about the integrity of our elections.
0: I'm curious, uh, this is sort of one of those what-if questions. Maybe it's impossible to answer, but I'll I'll try it anyway. If you were able to restart your career as a prosecutor, now going back to the Justice Department, uh, Mm -hmm. informed by all the experiences that you have now had, so you are able to kind of know all this information that you now know, having been through it all, would you have done your job differently
8: You know, I often wonder about that. And I got to tell you, I wonder how many Rolaids there are are available in the universe that would make it possible (laughs) for me to relive those moments. I'm thinking of my, I I think I'm having acid reflux, just considering doing it all over again. I had to tell you, so let me go ahead and swallow that for a second and think hypothetically. And, you know, I had to tell you, I, I really was very proud to be a representative in the sense of being able to stand up and say, Laura Coates, on behalf of the people of the United States. I thought it was something that um, was an extraordinarily impactful um, time in my life and one in which I don't take lightly, even though there are obvious there are moments of triumph and tragedy along the way. But I think I would, if I did it all again, I would recognize sooner the extraordinary value and unapologetically bringing your entire self into the courtroom, into the classroom, into the boardroom, onto the media panel, whatever it might be. Because I think justice is better served when we don't adhere to this unfortunate mascot of the Department of Justice, which is this blindfolded lady who essentially is told and telling people, hey, as long as you don't see anything, you will make the best decisions if all you do is listen. And in reality, we have to truly see the system for what it is, see the society in which we live in, see the aspirations that America has on paper and try to get there sooner to realize that, realize justice. And so I, if I did anything differently, it would be to sort of do the proverbial kick in the pants sooner that says, look, you as a prosecutor have an opportunity and a duty to ensure that the rights of the defendant are as upheld as the rights of the victim, and that it has to be inclusive, and you have to take that extraordinarily seriously. But also in the interim, buy stock in Rolades or Tums or whatever you <laughs> need to, to try to get relief for yourself.
1: The book is Just Pursuit, um, Black Prosecutors Fight for Fairness. Laura Coach, thanks for talking to us. Thank you.
8: Thank you. It's a pleasure.